You're listening to Nowhere to Run with Chris White on the Revelations Radio Network. Hey everybody, welcome to Bible Prophecy Talk and Nowhere to Run. My name is Chris. Thank you for downloading the show. Today we are completing chapter one of the book of Revelation. We started it last week when only got through four verses. Today I'm going to complete the chapter and I will put out the video that goes along with this particular study on the YouTube channels probably within a week, maybe more, not quite certain. I will post the audio here and also the text when I have that edited as well. So, thank you for your time, and here is the rest of chapter 1. Revelation 1, verse 5. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. The faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth. Charles Cooper and many others see this threefold description of Jesus Christ as a guide to the structure for the entire book of Revelation. Cooper outlines the book this way. Revelation 1.9 through 3.22 is Jesus as the faithful witness. Revelation 4.1 through 9.21 is Jesus as the firstborn over the dead. And Revelation 10.1 through 22.6 is Jesus as the ruler over the kings of the earth. To him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. As John finishes his list of titles of Jesus Christ, we see a picture of the most important aspects of Christ's life and divine mission. He is a teacher of truth, victorious over death, he is the King of Kings, and he died to save us out of love. While I consider it possible that the Holy Spirit intended the titles of Jesus Christ in this greeting to be an outline of the book of Revelation, I could also see this as simply being similar to other places in the New Testament where the initial greeting in the name of Jesus Christ is followed by a listing of Christ's attributes and glorious accomplishments, such as 2 Corinthians 1 verses 1 through 3 and Galatians 1 verses 3 through 5. Revelation 1 verse 6, And has made us kings and priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion for ever and ever. Amen. John's doxology, which he began in the previous verse, concludes here. This kings and priests idea. The idea of the church being made kings and priests is referenced two more times in the book of Revelation, Revelation 5, 10, and 26. In those instances, it seems to be referring to the position of the church after the establishment of Christ's earthly kingdom. However, it is possible and even likely that in this instance, it is a reference to the priestly position that we as a church currently hold in a spiritual sense, being a royal priesthood, as in 1 Peter 2.9. Revelation 1 verse 7. Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. This is a difficult passage, since as far as I can tell, at least two interpretations of this verse are possible. The problem centers on the phrase, even they who pierced him, which we will discuss at length when we come to it. Several elements of this verse are found in other passages. 
For instance, Matthew 24, 30, and 31 contains three phrases which are also found in Revelation 1, verse 7, such as coming in the clouds, all the tribes of the earth, and mourn. Matthew 24, 30-31 says, Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with the great sound of a trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. The idea that Jesus will return on the clouds of heaven is a very consistent theme in the New Testament. See Acts 1, 9-11 and 1 Thessalonians 4:17. Every eye will see him. It seems that both the righteous and the unrighteous will see the return of Christ, since we have examples of both groups said to see the return of Christ during this coming on the clouds event. For example, we see that Christian believers will physically see the return of Christ in Luke 21, 27-28. We also see that the unrighteous people who see the sign of Christ's return in heaven in Revelation 6, 12-17, which is closely linked with the coming on the clouds event in Matthew 24, 29-31, will hide themselves in the rocks for fear of judgment at Christ's return. Even they who pierced him. The first of at least two possible interpretations of these people that pierced Jesus who mourn that will see his return is connected to Zechariah 12.10, which says, And I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication, and they will look on me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son, and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. Here, the idea is that many, but not all, of the Jewish people will repent of their unbelief and believe in Jesus in Mass at Christ's return. Though the idea of the coming on the clouds is not mentioned, the context of Zechariah 12 is clearly eschatological. Since John seems to be making a direct reference to the verse in Zechariah by using phrases like, they that pierced him, and because he includes the idea that they are mourning, it is logical to assume that John intends his readers to understand that when Christ returns, the Jewish people will mourn in repentance and experience a mass conversion at that time. The mourning in this case would be a mourning of repentance associated with their conversion as it is in Zechariah 12. The other possible view sees the phrase, every eye will see him, even they who pierced him, as literal, meaning that some of the people who caused Christ's death in the first century will actually see his return. This idea goes against the traditional understanding of the church about the nature and timing of the resurrection of the dead, since all those who could be said to have pierced Christ are long dead and not expected to be resurrected from the dead in order to see this event. It is true that the unrighteous dead will be resurrected to life in order to face judgment, Daniel 12.2, Revelation 20, verse 5, and 11 through 15. It is equally true that the resurrection of the unjust happens at the end of the millennial kingdom, Revelation 25 and 11 through 15, at least a thousand years after the battle of Armageddon. In other words, based on the traditional understanding of when the unrighteous dead are resurrected, of which those who pierced Jesus are probably a part, they will be resurrected at least a thousand years too late to see Jesus' return.
Despite the obvious problem for the literal view of this verse, it is given a measure of credibility because of a strong parallel between our verse in Revelation 1-7 and Mark 14-61-64, which says, But he kept silent and answered nothing. Again the high priest asked him, saying to him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Jesus said, I am, and you will see the Son of Man sitting in the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, What further need do we have of witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. This verse is significant because Jesus tells the council of Sanhedrin at the very moment that they condemned him to death that they would see him coming on the clouds of heaven. It is easy to see the Sanhedrin as those who pierced him, since the phrase, him who they pierced, was taken from Zechariah 12.10 and clearly puts the blame of the piercing on the, quote, house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And if there was a specific moment when the Jews could be said to have pierced Jesus, it would be this very scene in which they finally condemned him to death for blasphemy. Following this literal interpretation, Jesus promised the Sanhedrin that they would see him at his return, a promise which seems to be reiterated in our verse, Revelation 1, verse 7. In this case, the mourning that the people of the earth and those who pierce Jesus are doing when they see Christ's return in Revelation 1, 7 is to be understood as unrighteous people mourning for fear of judgment, which seems to be the intent of the mourning in the other coming on the clouds verses, such as Matthew 24, 29 through 31. Again, the problem with this interpretation is that it would require a specific resurrection of just the people who pierced him in order to watch the return of Christ a thousand years before they would normally be resurrected in order to face judgment. It is possible that Jesus was not telling those specific people who condemned him to death that they would see his return, but rather he was using the you in a corporate way to refer to Jewish people in general. If this is the case, it is possible to reconcile both interpretations, since it would make way for the view that Jesus was telling the Sanhedrin that despite their rejection of him in the first century, the Jews, who are alive at the time of his return, would see him and mourn in repentance and be converted as in Zechariah 12.10. Revelation 1 verse 8 I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. It's difficult to tell if the final part of this greeting, which began in Revelation 1-4, is from God the Father or Jesus Christ. The commentators are split on the issue. Those that see this quote as coming from God the Father believe this because the first part of the greeting in Revelation 1-4 is clearly distinguishing God the Father as the one who was and is and is to come, which they see as the same eternal, omnipotent qualities expressed by the title Alpha and Omega. They would say that this quote is the conclusion of the introduction of God in Revelation 1 verse 4. Even those that hold to the position that God the Father, not Jesus, is speaking here, do see Revelation 1 verse 11 and other instances in Revelation which use the phrase Alpha and Omega as coming from Jesus. Therefore, they still understand that Jesus is using previously established titles for God, including the Alpha and Omega, to describe himself throughout the book. I personally do not feel there is sufficient information to say with certainty who is meant to be speaking in Revelation 1 verse 8, 
But in either case, it is clear that Jesus uses these terms, which are used of God the Father, throughout the Old and New Testaments for himself, including other places in Revelation, making this an excellent apologetic for the deity of Christ either way you look at it. Revelation 1 verse 9 I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. Tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ. John names these three things as being part of the brotherhood of faith. In effect, he is saying that they are united in the universal aspects of being a Christian. We can see examples in scripture that all three of these items should be expected in the Christian life. For example, in the case of the word tribulation, we read in John 16:33b, In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. In the case of the word kingdom, all the faithful servants of Jesus Christ will inherit the kingdom. See Matthew 21:43, 1 Thessalonians 2:12, and James 2:5. In the case of the word patience, patience or endurance is spoken of as an important requirement for the believer in the New Testament. Hebrews 10:36, Revelation 14:12. It is usually associated with endurance of faith through persecution and trials. Patmos Patmos is a very small Greek island in the Aegean Sea. Tradition has it that John was exiled to the island by the Roman authorities for preaching the gospel. Exile was a common practice of the Romans at the time. It is said that Patmos was chosen by the authorities because there John would not be able to preach to many people since there was hardly anyone living on the island. Revelation 1 verse 10 I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet. I was in the Spirit. This phrase is used several ways in the New Testament. It can mean that John was taken by God in the Spirit to see a vision, which is unambiguously the case with John later in Revelation 4 verse 2. Also see 2 Corinthians 12 verse 2, where Paul describes being taken in the Spirit to the throne of God. The phrase in the spirit is also used as a state of being for the Christian. One can be in the spirit during prayer, for example. Ephesians 6:18. There are good arguments for both views about this phrase, and determining the correct one is difficult. If this is speaking of John being taken in the spirit to see a vision, then the fact that he does indeed see a vision after this point is evidence to support that conclusion. However, that can also be explained with a second option. If John is saying that he was in the Spirit, in the sense that he was in a deep state of prayer, it would make a great deal of sense. We see other visions preceded by similar states of prayer in the New Testament, Acts 22.17. Because John says he was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I will argue later that the Lord's day is the day early Christians set aside time to pray and worship the Lord, it makes good logical sense that John was praying in a deep way on the day set aside for such practices. If this is the correct way to understand the phrase, then it means John was praying on the Lord's day, and the prayer was interrupted with a vision and a voice, much like in Acts 22.17. This latter view has credibility, since it is only after this vision, which lasts until chapter 4, that John is actually taken in the Spirit to heaven to see the throne of God. 
We know this first vision is just a vision of Christ and not a physical or spiritual transportation to heaven because Revelation 4, 1 through 2 seems to suggest that the in the spirit type of transportation event and subsequent heavenly visit had not yet occurred to John until that point. Revelation 4, 1 through 2 says, After these things, the vision John had while praying, I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you things which must take place after this. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold a throne set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. The Lord's Day The majority of scholars see this as a reference to Sunday, the day that early Christians set aside for spiritual practices. This is also the view of the early church fathers about this verse as well. The early Christians referred to Sunday, the first day of the week, as the Lord's Day. And the reason they met, ate together, and worshipped the Lord on the first day of the week was for two very good biblical reasons. The first was that Sunday was the day that Matthew, Mark, and Luke mention that the empty tomb was found. Mark 16, 1-3 says, And when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, had brought sweet spices that they might come and anoint him. And very early in the morning, the first day of the week, they came unto the sepulcher at the rising of the sun. And they said among themselves, Who shall roll us away the stone from the door of the sepulcher? Similar passages can be found in Matthew 28, 1, Luke 23, 55, and 24, 2. The other biblical reason that the early Christians met on the first day of the week was because of the Sunday appearances of the resurrected Christ. After Jesus rose from the dead, there were 40 days before he ascended into heaven. During that time, scripture records seven times in which he appeared to his disciples. On five of those occasions, the Bible tells us that he met with them on the first day of the week, which is Sunday. The other two times, no day is mentioned. For example, John 20 verse 19 says, Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, came Jesus and stood in the midst and saith unto them, Peace be upon you. There are many other first day appearances of the resurrected Christ. For further study on these passages, see Mark 16, 9 through 13, 16, 14 through 18, Luke 24, 13 through 33, 24, 34, 24, 36 through 34, and John 20, 11, 18, 19 through 23, and 26 through 29. The context of this verse and the subsequent passages strongly supports the idea that John was praying on Sunday when he was interrupted by a vision of Christ who dictated the seven letters to the seven churches. Then, after that vision, he was transported to the throne room of God, Revelation 4, 1-2, when he was shown the events that would take place in the end times. God slash Jesus' voice is often likened to that of a trumpet, usually because it is incredibly loud. See Exodus 19, 16-19, and Hebrews 12, 18-19. Revelation 1, verse 11, saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, and what you see, write in a book, and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Here, the voice is clearly that of Jesus Christ. This is interesting because he uses titles for himself that are also used of God, Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. 
This then is one of the many proof texts for the divinity of Christ in the book of Revelation. What you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia. Here, John is commissioned to dictate what he sees and send it to the seven churches. To Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. These were not the only churches in Asia Minor at the time, but these seven were chosen for reasons that we cannot be sure of. Perhaps one reason was because by speaking to these specific churches and describing their accomplishments and failures, it would best reflect the issues that all the churches deal with and therefore be the most useful to future generations of Christians. Revelation 1, 12-16 Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. This is a description of Jesus as John saw him in his vision. This would be Jesus as he appears in his resurrected and glorified state, and not how John would have remembered him from his earthly ministry. There are a number of similarities between this vision of Christ by John and the vision of a man that Daniel saw in Daniel 10 verses 5 through 6. Here are the characteristics of the man that Daniel saw in Daniel 10 verses 5 through 6. He was dressed in linen, a waist girded with pure gold, face like lightning, eyes like flaming torches, words like roaring, arms and feet like polished bronze, and a body like beryl. It is possible that it was just an angelic being and not the pre-incarnate Christ speaking with Daniel in Daniel 10, as angels are often described with similar but not exactly the same characteristics. The angelic interpretation of Daniel 10, 2-9 is preferred by some, since at first glance it seems that the being that appears to Daniel in 10, 2-9 is the same angel in Daniel 10, 13, who says that he fought the prince of Persia for 21 days and had to be helped by Michael in order to complete his mission. Since it is inconceivable that the creator of the universe would be able to be withstood for 21 days by a mere angel, or that he would need help from Michael, some choose to disregard the similarities between the two passages. However, it is not necessary that the being that Daniel saw in 10, 2-9 is the same one in Daniel 10, 13, since Daniel fell asleep after the encounter with the first being and was awakened in Daniel 10, 9 by the being who appears in 10, 13. It is not at all clear if the two beings were the same, and it is quite plausible that after his vision of the incarnate Christ, Daniel fell asleep and was later awakened by an actual angel. However, it is clear that at least some angels, particularly those described as strong angels, share some of the characteristics that are listed above with the resurrected and glorified Christ. See Revelation 5, 2, 10, 2, 15, 6, and 18, 21. Some of the similarities between angels and the glorified Christ of Revelation 1 are being clothed in white linen, having a chest girded with gold, and having faces like the sun. 
It could simply be that the resurrected and glorified Christ and angels share some characteristics because this is, generally speaking, what most heavenly beings look like. To understand this argument, consider the following chain of thought. Jesus was the first fruits of the coming resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15:20-23. That is to say that Jesus is currently enthroned in heaven in a glorified body, a body that we too will wear once we are resurrected. 1 John 3:2 says, "Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is." So in some sense, Jesus is still a man on the throne even though he is in a glorified body. The next point is that this glorified body of Christ is very similar to what angels have. Jude 1 verse 6 says, And the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. When Jude refers to the abode or habitation that the angels left in order to come down and have sex with human women, as we see in Genesis 6, he is using a very rare Greek word used only twice in the Bible, once here in Jude, and the other time it's referring to the glorified body that believers in Christ will have upon the resurrection. The verse is found in 2 Corinthians 5.2, and the word is translated here as habitation. It says, for we know that if our earthly home, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. So we can see here that upon the resurrection we will obtain a type of body that the angels had before falling, a body type that Christ, as the first fruits of the resurrection, has right now. This seems to be explicitly taught by Jesus himself in Matthew 22:30, where he says, For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels of God in heaven. So, while it is possible to equate the being Daniel saw with the resurrected Christ in Revelation, without having it be the same being that struggled while fighting the Prince of Persia, it is not necessary. And it could simply be that many beings in heaven, including Jesus, certain angels, and indeed the resurrected saints of the future, will look similar even though their ranks are obviously not the same. Revelation 1 verse 17 And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid, I am the first and the last. Both the reaction that John has to Jesus, as well as Jesus telling John not to be afraid, is similar to human reactions to appearances of the reincarnate Christ in the Old Testament, and to angelic encounters. I think that any encounter that humans have with heavenly beings is overwhelming, but especially so when one is faced with a glorified and divine Christ. Revelation 1 verse 18 I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and death. We should make sure to connect this verse to the other one before it, since it correctly begins there. Jesus says, I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. This is a kind of title that refers to Jesus' history and future. It describes him having existed from the beginning, living and dying, and being resurrected to life forever. 
it appears that the Antichrist is described in a similar way in the book of Revelation. That is, he is given a title that describes his history and future with a particular emphasis on his apparent resurrection from the dead. Though in the case of the Antichrist, the concept of his pre-existence is obviously omitted, since it is not true in his case. And his future is described not as living forever, but going to the bottomless pit. A few examples. Revelation 17.18 The beast that was and is not and yet is. Revelation 17.18 The beast that was and is not and shall ascend out of the bottomless pit and go into perdition. So, as you can see, in the case of the Antichrist, the was is not to suggest his pre-existence, but rather is used to describe his living on earth before receiving the deadly wound and being healed. Revelation 1, verse 19. Write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. This is often said to be an outline for the structure of the book of Revelation. The outline would look something like this. The things which you have seen. The vision of Christ in chapter 1. The things which are is the seven churches in chapters 2 and 3. And the things which shall take place is chapters 4 through 22. While it is certainly possible that the book can be outlined in this way, it must be considered a very general outline, since there is no time difference between the things which you have seen, the vision of Christ, and the things which are, the letters to the seven churches. In addition, there are several instances of John discussing things which have clearly already taken place in the distant past in chapters 4 through 22, including the discussion of Jesus' birth and ascension to heaven in Revelation 12, 1 through 5. I think it's best to see this as a command for John to write down all that he experiences during this episode, from the first thing that he saw to the last. Revelation 1, verse 20. The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. As I noted in the discussion on Revelation 1-4, even if the seven spirits in Revelation 1-4 are the same as the seven angels seen blowing the trumpets in chapter 8, There is no evidence to conclude that the seven spirits or the seven trumpet angels are the same angels over the seven churches mentioned here. We must assume that these are a totally different set of angels, even though it is technically a possibility that they are all the same. There is a lot of disagreement among commentators about the nature of these angels of the seven churches. Many argue that because the Greek word angelos can mean messenger, that this is probably referring to human beings and not heavenly beings. There is at least one occasion, Matthew 11.10, where a human, John the Baptist, was referred to as a messenger where the Greek word angelos was used. Those who hold to the position are divided as to who the human messenger would be in relationship to the respective church. Some say that they are the pastor of the church, But this seems very unlikely because there is no place in the New Testament that describes a single individual exercising pastoral authority over a church. Instead, churches were ruled by a plurality of elders. And even though later generations of the church did develop the practice of putting a single individual in charge of a city church, there is no evidence that this had begun in the days of the apostles. In addition, the idea that a pastor is a messenger has to be explained as him being a messenger of God because he preaches and teaches the word of God. 
While that is true in an abstract sense, it does not seem a likely definition of a church leader. Certainly no church leader was called a messenger in the New Testament. The other option for those who hold to the view that Angelos refers to a human here would say that these are men who were sent to visit John in Patmos on behalf of the churches, possibly to exchange information or letters, and to bring John supplies. This view is superior to the last in that at least it has a straightforward reason that the individual would be called a messenger. However, it seems unlikely that John wrote seven copies of the book of Revelation and waited until each individual messenger showed up to receive the book and distribute it, which would be the only reason that each letter would be addressed to the messenger of each individual church. It seems more likely that the book was distributed the way epistles were in other instances in the early church, that is, by having a church read them and then copy the letter and send it to the church closest to them to do the same. See Colossians 4.16. There is evidence that this was the way the book of Revelation was distributed too, since the order that the seven churches are listed in Revelation 2 and 3 is the same order one would use if you traveled to each of the churches, starting with Ephesus, which was the closest church to John in Patmos. On the other side of this issue are those that think that angelos means angelic beings, and that there are angels assigned to each of these churches, possibly to all churches. This view, too, has its strengths and weaknesses. The strengths are as follows. The normal meaning for angels can be applied. Angels are symbolically portrayed as stars in other places in Scripture, Job 38.7, Daniel 8.10, Revelation 1.16 and 20, 2, 1, and 3, 1. Also, Jesus holds these stars in his hand, which could be more easily applied to angels than humans, and groups of seven angels are seen several times in the book of Revelation, where there is no disagreement that angelic beings are in view. Despite this being the easiest position to take on the surface, it gives people trouble to think that churches are assigned angels to watch over them. However, there is precedence that angels are assigned to protect individuals, Psalm 91.11, Matthew 18.10. They are also assigned to watch over geographical regions, such as Michael, who watches over and protects Israel, Daniel 12.1. So, it is not inconceivable that God would assign angels to watch over his beloved churches, just as he has assigned them to watch over Israel. The biggest problem with the angelic view is that the letters to the seven churches are specifically addressed to the angel over the respective church, meaning that when Jesus tells the church of their sin and commands them to repent, grammatically and logically, Jesus must be talking to the angel as well as to the congregation. This leaves us with only a few options if we want to accept the angelic view. Number one, the angels were held responsible for the failings of the church even though they did not actually sin as the people in the congregation did. Or number two, the angels did sin, or at least were negligent in their duties. Though there is evidence that angels can sin, Genesis 6, 2, 2 Peter 2, 4, Jude 1, 6, those angels were judged at that time. There are some highly subjective clues in Scripture that angels can make mistakes. Job 4, 17-18, Psalm 82, 1 Corinthians 6, 3. Perhaps even the kinds of mistakes seen in this passage, that is, doing a poor job with overseeing groups of people that they were assigned to, Psalm 82. Unfortunately, I cannot come to as definitive of a solution as I would like to as to who or what these seven angels over the seven churches are, 
but I do lean toward the angelic view and will continue to do so until I see stronger evidence to the contrary. The seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. The symbolic mystery here is much easier explained. The seven lampstands are representative of each of the seven churches to which he is writing. Jesus is seen walking in the midst of these lampstands, meaning that he is watching over his churches and is intimately involved with their progress and care. Summary of chapter 1. John describes the importance of the letter he is writing and tells his readers it is of divine origin. He greets the seven churches in the name of Jesus. John describes that while he was praying, he received a vision of Jesus and was commissioned by him to write this letter. He describes the appearance of Jesus in his glorified state, and he records Jesus' command to him to write what he sees and his explanation of the meaning of the symbolic images that John has seen. Thanks for listening. If you would like a free copy of the Christianity 101 DVD, which contains 8 gigabytes of audio, video, and text of various discipleship materials on a data DVD, please go to any one of my websites and look for the Christianity 101 button. It's totally free, and I'll ship it to you wherever you are in the world. If you would like to support this ministry or any of the others that I do, please consider a tax-deductible donation, which can be sent by PayPal using the email chris at chriswhiteministries.com or by clicking the PayPal button on any one of my websites. Another great way to support this ministry is by writing a review of the podcast on iTunes or writing a review of my books on Amazon. Reviews figure very prominently into the ranking algorithms of both of those websites, and the higher they rank, the more people that can be reached. Thanks for your time and for subscribing to this feed.